from Revelation 2, verses 8 to 11, and this can be found in the Church Bibles on page 1,234, or 1,234. To the church in Smyrna, to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are, are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but they are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer perse persecution for ten days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Diane. Thank you, Sean, for your welcome, rather intimidating introduction. Um, I'm always reminded when I get such a generous introduction that um, flattery is rather like smoking. It does you no harm as long as you don't inhale. And um, so do take what Sean said with a pinch of salt. Um, and keep your Bible open, please, at the passage uh, which we've just had read to us. You'll know that our evening services are working through uh, this remarkable book of Revelation, and we're taking a little more detailed look at those letters as we go back to chapters 2 and 3, which actually were introduced by Will Pearson G. Um, uh, early in April. And we're going to look now at this remarkable story of the church in Smyrna. Since this year started... 20 churches have been forcibly closed in Algeria, and quite a large number of Christians have been arrested. Earlier this month, the village of Harala in Indonesia was attacked. 120 houses were burnt down, three churches and a school. Four Christians were tortured and murdered. 56 were wounded. Uh, about three weeks ago, the Chaldean archbishop in Iraq was abducted and murdered. His name goes on to a long list of Christians increasingly under pressure who are either murdered or kidnapped or forced to leave Iraq. Uh, in the last few weeks, there's been the ongoing trial of the five men who have admitted murdering the three Christians we were thinking of last year in Turkey, in Malatya. And lawyers now are arguing that there is a deliberate orchestration going on to try to avoid discovering who are behind those murders. In fact, the number of Christian Christians who've been attacked and church properties which have been attacked since the beginning of the year has increased very significantly. And we could go on, couldn't we? It's estimated that about 170,000 people every year lose their lives directly as a result of their commitment to Jesus Christ. They are martyrs. And if you take the general level of pressure amongst Christians around the world, it's increasing. It's estimated that 200 million evangelical Christians, that's people like us, people who believe in the gospel, who believe in the Bible, 200 million such Christians in about 35 countries are under direct and hostile persecution. Of course, um, we are here in North Oxford, and it's something of a challenge sometimes to get 
into the skin, under the skin of believers and church congregations around the world who are suffering in that kind of way. I always uh, remember an interview I had with a young man who'd just graduated from a British university and had decided he would like to work for an organization working in mission in Europe. And I was asked by the organization to interview him, so I spoke with him for a short while and I asked him what were the main reasons why he was committed to serve the Lord as a disciple and as in, in so-called Christian service, full-time Christian service. And he thought and he said, well, there are two main reasons. First of all, I'd like to be financially secure. And secondly, I'd like to travel around Europe. And um, you'll understand that uh, not only was it rather naive in terms of understanding, you don't normally go into Christian service to be financially secure, but also, it was very self-centered in its orientation. It misunderstood what Christian service and Christian discipleship are all about. The Christian life means being identified with Jesus Christ. That perhaps is the best definition. If we're going to follow in his steps as a disciple, then there is no question at all that it will be costly. The pressures will vary, of course. I don't suggest that the kinds of challenges which I've illustrated in the last few minutes will necessarily impact us. But I'm pretty sure that living as a Christian, naming the name of Christ in sophisticated, postmodern, post-Christian Oxford will have its costs, just like anywhere else. It's a condition of discipleship, in fact. And so this evening, looking at this simple story of the church in Smyrna, let's think for a moment about some of those costs, and we'll also look at the other side of the story. Um, as we've gone through this series in uh, Revelation, you'll know that Revelation was written when the Roman Empire extended over a fairly considerable territory. It included much of what is now Turkey, and Smyrna is now called Izmir. It's the second city in Turkey. And writers often mention that Izmir, that Smyrna, had a very wonderful harbor. It had flourishing trade. It was a beautiful city. It was overtopped by a, a, a hill with some very fine public buildings across the top. Those were called the crown of Smyrna by a second century writer. In 600 BC, it was destroyed. But later, it rose from the ashes. Alexander the Great rebuilt this city. Another significant moment was in AD 26, when it successfully competed against 11 other cities and was awarded the, uh, the honor of being the host city of a new temple which was built to de deify the Emperor Tiberius. So it became the center of the cult of Caesar worship. To be a Christian in Smyrna was to be identified clearly with the cross of Jesus Christ. If you followed the name of Jesus Christ, if you were his disciple, if you were identified with Jesus, then you knew something of the costs of discipleship. But at the same time, you are not only united with Jesus in his death, you're united with Jesus in his resurrection. And therefore, there are also references in this small letter to some of the great certainties of Christian discipleship. So let's look at those two things, the costs of Christian discipleship and then the certainties of Christian discipleship. First of all, the costs of Christian discipleship. And you'll see how the letter begins in verse 9. I know your afflictions. The word afflictions is a word frequently used in the New Testament for pressures of all kinds. And what did it look like for this church in Smyrna? Let me just highlight three of the pressures that they had to face, three of the costs of their Christian discipleship. First of all, the pressure of poverty. Stated again in verse 9, I know your afflictions and your poverty. 
Again, the word that's used there is a word that implies complete destitution. They had absolutely nothing. As far as we can tell, they were probably a despised minority in the city of Smyrna. They were under a great deal of pressure. Probably they had a difficult time getting jobs, making ends meet. We know that there was a fairly substantial Jewish uh, population in the city. They hated the Christians and could well have discriminated against them in shops and in businesses. And we also know from other writers in the New Testament what those early Christians often faced. Do you remember what the writers of the Hebrews said in chapter 10? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. You joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. That writer is saying the same as the risen Christ said to those Christians in Smyrna. You actually have better, lasting possessions. You may lose your present possessions. You may be suffering from poverty. Actually, you are rich. You are suffering the pressures of poverty. Spiritually, you are rich. I can't help thinking about that very simple point that uh, it's something of a paradox, but I'm sure there's an obvious link that the places in the world where the church appears to be growing most rapidly are nearly always in the countries which are poorest. There is something about that environment which encourages Christian believers to be even more dependent than they otherwise would be, dependent on the Lord. Our friends in the Democratic Republic of Congo are extremely thankful for the gift from St. Andrews uh, just a few weeks ago, bikes and Bibles for the DRC. Uh, many of the pastors cannot afford even a Bible. Many of them walk hundreds of kilometers to serve congregations and people in need because they can't afford a bicycle. And yet such people are rich in faith. Uh, they are generous in their compassion to other people. They are joyful in their service week by week. The pressure of poverty. Secondly, in this small church, the pressure of slander. Again, it's filled out in verse 9. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Uh, Jesus knew of another pressure that was being placed on these young Christians, and this was the pressure exerted on them by that substantial Jewish population I've just mentioned. This Jewish colony had apparently contributed a great deal to Smyrna, including the uh, uh, development of its uh, remarkable buildings and its various construction projects, and they were a very influential group in Smyrna. And much of the hatred towards Christians arose from the fact that probably it was from these Jewish synagogues that the church drew so many of its converts. And you'll see the rather strong words which are used by the risen Christ here of that community. This Christian community was the target of malicious gossip. It included this slanderous accusation that they were disloyal to Rome. They didn't, they didn't worship the emperor. They are, and Jesus describes this particular group, the Jews, as a synagogue of Satan. In other words, they are not Jews at all, the risen Christ is saying. They don't deserve to be called the people of God. They are doing the devil's work. They are slandering, the word literally means blaspheming, the Christian community. And therefore, they are blaspheming God himself. They are not really the people of God at all. They are a synagogue, not of those who honor God. They are a synagogue of the one who slanders his people, a synagogue of Satan. And uh, twice in this short letter and just in these few verses, we have reference to that figure, Satan, here, and then again in verse 10, where he's referred to as the devil, the accuser. 
the slanderer, the father of lies, as Jesus called him. And I think it's very easy to forget that there is a devil actively at work, often so much so that Christian discipleship, of course, confronts the kinds of challenges to which I've referred. It would be very easy to live our lives as Christian disciples without reflecting on the fact that the context in which we do that is a context of spiritual warfare, according to the New Testament. The devil uses any means he can, including using so-called religious people, as he did here in Smyrna. So here is another aspect of the cost of discipleship. Gossip, insult, abuse. Now those things can be very deeply painful. And here in Smyrna, they not only felt that, it went even further. The third pressure, the pressure of persecution. It's described in verse 10. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death. So there's the list, persecution, imprisonment, death. All of these were predicted for this small, faithful group of disciples in Smyrna. The use of the word 10 days is um, discussed a good deal by people who write commentaries on this letter. It could be a reference to what we now know were the 10-day games which took place in Smyrna. They found some inscriptions apparently referring to the 10-day games. And of course, in those games in the first century, Christians would often be uh, paraded as fodder for wild animals or as helpless victims when it came to the uh, gladiators sports. The reference might simply mean it's a short period, just for 10 days, rather like we use the shorthand, say it'll just be a couple of weeks. It might be that kind of writing, we're not entirely sure. In other words, this suffering that you're going to face will be intense, but it will come to an end. And we know too, as I've already hinted, that Smyrna was one of those cities where the Christian community faced all of the challenges associated with having to resist emperor worship. This Roman insistence on patriotic loyalty, where they had to take this uh, incense and burn it in front of the, uh, uh, the image of the emperor. They refused to do that. They refused to respond to this Caesar cult in the city, and therefore they faced a great deal of persecution in that city with its temple erected to the honor of Tiberius. So those faithful Christians knew a great deal about suffering. They were accused of disloyalty, of treachery, not least by that Jewish population who were very keen to see the back of these believers. Um, there is, of course, a well-known story from this church which you might have heard about. I don't have time to tell you the detail. It's a very moving story of one of John's own disciples. His name was, was uh, Polycarp, and in the middle of the second century, he had to confront what Jesus actually predicted there in verse 10, be faithful even to the point of death. Uh, this young disciple who heard the letter read, along with the uh, other members of the church, Polycarp, uh, he heard that letter as it came, and many years later he became its pastoral leader. Some people think he became the bishop of Smyrna, and even uh, John himself was the man who consecrated him bishop. Well, in A.D. 155, 156, this man was hunted down. He was taken up to the top of that hill, which I mentioned, up by the crown of Smyrna, and he was burnt to death. Uh, there's a very moving testimony which is recorded of the way he refused to recant. He refused 
to denounce the name of Jesus Christ. And there on that hill, he remembered doubtless the words which Jesus had written to him and to that small believing com community 60 years earlier, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you the crown of life. Not the glory of the city, but the crown that endures. Well, there were the pressures, the pressure of poverty, of slander, of persecution. Those were some of the costs of naming the name of Christ, the costs of discipleship. For the sake of Christ, uh, they lost their possessions, they lost their reputation, they lost their freedom. Some of them lost their lives. And it's worth asking the question, was it worth it? Why did they do it? In fact, I began just with a, a few examples of what is happening to 200 million Christians around the world today. Why do they do it? Why do they name the name of Christ despite those pressures? And the answer is because the gospel is true. Because they are united to Jesus Christ. The Christian life means union with Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ promised in the world you will have tribulation. Those are the costs of being identified with Jesus. But let's turn to the other side of the story. This is the second theme, the certainties of Christian discipleship. Because for the church in Smyrna, there were also very significant reminders of what it meant to be identified with Jesus, not just in his suffering, but also in his life, in his resurrection, in his power. They were united in his death, what would their union with Jesus Christ in his glorious resurrection mean for them? And there are several certainties that are expressed here in this letter which are deeply encouraging. And it's one of the reasons why I love this simple letter. First of all, the certainty of Christ's presence. This is how Jesus begins this very tender letter. I know the pressure you are under. I know your afflictions. I know the tribulation that is particular to you, you believers in Smyrna. And how is that? Well, uh, earlier, of course, in chapter 1, and uh, Sean introduced this to us, and also Will when he spoke on chapters 2 and 3, earlier in this series we saw in Revelation 1, Jesus is walking among the lampstands. That is, Jesus is among the churches. He is present with us his people. Because he is the risen Lord and Lord of the church, he is amongst us by his Holy Spirit. Now, when you're going through a tough time, I'm sure you're just like me. I find it incredibly valuable to have just one or two friends with whom I can discuss the particular pressure I'm facing or the decision I have to take or the challenges I have in my life or in my family. Talking it through with a friend is enormously valuable, isn't it? It can make a huge difference. And for me, those words at the beginning of the letter to Smyrna are incredibly encouraging. I know, Jesus says. Jesus completely identifies and understands the pressures which those believers in Smyrna had to face. And so the great certainty for Polycarp as he went up to that hill, the great certainty for the hard-pressed Christians in Smyrna, the great certainty for Christians all around the globe this evening, for you and for me, is that no matter what happens, no matter what kind of pressures we have to endure because we are committed to Jesus Christ, the suffering and the risen Jesus Christ is with us. That's the certainty of Christian discipleship. This is not just affirming a creed or ticking the boxes of belief. 
This is walking with Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, the certainty of Christ's presence. Not only that, the certainty of God's control. I've mentioned that in these verses there are two references to Satan's work. We saw it in verse 9, the actions of those inspired by Satan, and then also in verse 10, the devil who would put some of them in prison. And I think it's worth just spending a few moments on the realities of that for the Christian community in Smyrna and therefore for us. I've already hinted that we, uh, we need to take this seriously because unfortunately it's sadly true that there are some Christians who, when you talk about principalities and powers or Satan or evil spirits, it surprises them. It might even amuse them because they tend to think of those categories as somehow belonging to an outdated worldview, a kind of mythological baggage of something which is really no longer relevant in the 21st century. Many Christians, however, including, I'm sure, the 200 million that I've referenced this evening, they are all too aware of the reality of evil, the reality of dark forces. Uh, there are Christians who often wonder, why am I under this kind of sustained attack? Why does God allow this kind of pressure to be exerted on his people? Of course, um, some Christians appear to live their lives as if they're in a constant Star Wars adventure. And uh, there are equal and opposite powers of good and evil, and their lives seem to swing between these two poles. And something happens in their life which seems bad, and so they attribute that to the devil or something appears to be good, an event or an activity, and they attribute that to God, but neither is quite strong enough. And it's almost as if these two poles, these two worlds of good and evil are there with our lives swinging between the two. Now, the Bible will not allow us to have that perspective. These Christians in Smyrna were certainly under pressure, but was it out of control? You might meet some Christians as well who take a slightly different perspective. Their view of Christian spirituality is this, that God is good, and that therefore when anything evil happens to us as Christians, those evil influences must be removed as a result of believing prayer. And if they are not, then it is something to do with our faith. The fault lies with our uh, in incapacity when it comes to praying in faith. But we know that that is not the biblical perspective either. It's very clear in the New Testament, and this little letter is one obvious example, that Christians are always facing this pressure of satanic influence. Paul knew a great deal about it. Peter wrote about it. This church in Smyrna knew something of satanic resistance. And the context of Jesus' words to the church in Smyrna show us in two small ways, that this actually is not out of control. It's worth noticing, you see, in verse 10, first of all, only some of them were put in prison. And as I've already mentioned, this persecution was for a defined period. There were limits imposed. Like Job, this situation was still under the Lord's oversight, still under his care. And although I wouldn't want to press these verses too hard, I think the rest of the New Testament and the flow of the storyline of this book of Revelation tell us that nothing lies outside the scope of God's sovereignty, God's control, not even Satan, who bubbles up in this book several times. Satan himself, here in Smyrna, can only act according to the parameters which God himself has set. 
even the worst of Satan's activities, can be redeemed by God to bring about his purposes. And so our calling, like those Christians in Smyrna, is to live as faithful children of the sovereign Lord, to keep trusting him. His purpose is not to bypass those difficulties. Otherwise, how do we make sense of these 200 million Christians around the world? But his purpose is to transform those very difficulties. And that links, I think, to a third and most obvious certainty that we read about in these verses. The certainty of death's defeat. We see in each of these letters, of course, in chapters 2 and 3, uh, the designation that's given to Jesus Christ at the beginning of the letter is very specially appropriate to the kind of situation in which that church was living. Many of the phrases used to introduce Christ to the churches are, in fact, borrowed from the section which uh, Sean preached from in, in chapter 1. And this is one of the uh, reasons why 1, 2, and 3, these chapters, are, are read together. It's an integrating feature because they demonstrate how Jesus is described in chapter 1 in this remarkable vision and how that same Jesus is among the believers, is working with these disciples. We've already seen it in chapter 1, the certainty of death's defeat. Verse 18, I am the living one, I was dead. Behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And here it is again, written to Smyrna, chapter 2, verse 8. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. The first and the last, uh, that's used in the Old Testament of God himself in Isaiah. It's used in chapter 1 twice. It's used at the end of this book of Revelation, to which we'll come shortly. I am the first and the last. Jesus, God's Son, is at the beginning and he is at the end. He is the Lord of life. Here in chapter 2, verse 8, in fact, the tense, I'm told, refers to the act, the moment of resurrection. He became dead and lived again. So these Christians in Smyrna would have listened very attentively when this letter, when this letter was read to them. They lived in a city which had been destroyed and then been rebuilt by Alexander the Great. They lived in a city which had died and been raised again. And of course, they too were confronting death, as we've just seen. So these words of the one who has defeated death represented a really important certainty in their Christian discipleship. And it's the same for Christians in Indonesia, in Nigeria, in Algeria, in Iraq, in Turkey. It's the same for Christians here. This is the reality which John describes in his titles as he gives them to Jesus Christ. Someone has walked through the valley of the shadow of death. Someone has defeated that enemy. Do you remember how C.S. Lewis once used very dramatic language? Jesus has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has opened. So hope in the middle of these pressures is built upon that very foundation, that Jesus died and was raised again. And that's the big difference about Christian hope. When we use the word hope in uh, our culture, we normally are talking about something we hope will happen in the future. I hope the sun will shine tomorrow. I hope if I do enough work, I might pass my exams. I hope the preacher will stop quite soon. 
But there are absolutely no guarantees when we think of that word, hope. Um, but for the Christian, when he talks and when we talk about hope, we are talking about that being based on an event which has already happened. That's what the risen Christ says to the church in Smyrna. That's what Peter said. Hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus who died and sprang to life again, he says to this church in Smyrna. Jesus the first and the last. Jesus the Lord of life. And therefore, you are united to him, you believers in Smyrna, you believers in Oxford. He is the unchanging God. From the beginning of time to its end, he is the sovereign Lord. The certainty of Christ's presence, the certainty of God's control, the certainty of death's defeat, and finally, the certainty of eternal reward. Verse 10, be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. This uh, promised crown of life, of course, it may be an image of the crown of victory in the games, as you'll have heard many times from preachers, or it may have been the laurel crown, which was a reward for service in the city. Perhaps it's an echo of the crown of Smyrna up there, the beautiful range of buildings up on the hill above the city, which Polycarp saw. But of course, most of all, it refers to the royal crown, the reward to faithful disciples who will one day rule with Jesus Christ. If we're united with Jesus in his death, we are united with Jesus in his resurrection, we are united with Jesus in his reign. And not only that, you see what it says in verse 11, these faithful disciples will not be hurt at all by the second death. Um, it's a phrase that's used later in the book of Revelation, which we might come to in the fantastic chapters at the end of this uh, letter, Revelation 20. Then death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. So the second death is the death of eternal judgment. It is the death after death. We all die once, but the second death is an eternity separated from God. And so for Christ's followers in Smyrna, who faced death, as we will, for Christ's followers, that death will not touch us. That second death will not touch us. Notice what Christ says. It's a very emphatic double negative. I looked at a few translations. I think the NAV gets it quite well. Uh, he overcomes will not be hurt at all by the second death. death. There is no way you will ultimately be harmed. Never, never, Jesus is saying to this community in Smyrna. You are absolutely secure. Well, these then are the costs of discipleship and the certainties of discipleship, the suffering and the glory. And of course, they always belong together. Uh, the early Christians learned that in the book of Acts. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. These many pressures, large or small, which all of us face in one way or another if we name the name of Christ and live life consistently, those many pressures are actually a gateway for that is how we enter the kingdom of God. These troubles are not some dead end for the Christians in Turkey or Iraq or Nigeria. These troubles are actually the way out to life in all its fullness. 
And that's why the risen Lord says to us, as he does to that Christian community, what the Spirit says, which we must hear, do not be afraid, be faithful. Let's pray together. Our Father, we can't uh, speak about these themes without spending a moment this evening praying for our fellow believers, your people all around the world, in so many countries who are suffering because they name the name of Christ. We ask that you will strengthen them by the power of the Holy Spirit. You will encourage them through your word as you speak to them, as you speak to us through its pages even this evening. Do not be afraid. Be faithful. And then we pray for believers in this country and in our own congregation. And some of us who live in a fairly hostile environment, our parents don't believe in Jesus, perhaps our workmates don't. Perhaps we are facing difficult decisions in relationships or in moral behavior where living according to the standards of Christian discipleship is a costly business. Lord, help us to be faithful to you like those early believers. We pray that although we're reminded of these costs, which come to us because we're united with you, you will also drill deep into our heads and into our hearts these realities, these certainties of Christian discipleship, that because we are united with you in your death, we are also united with you in your resurrection, that evil has lost the initiative, and that one day we will join with all of your people recognizing that evil is done away, all tears are wiped away, and we will stand with all of your people, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. So as we take bread and wine this evening, fill our hearts with joy as we celebrate all that Jesus has done, and help us to live bravely for him. In his name we pray. Amen.